really the combination of tech expertise and innovation to think about how do you bring scalability and leverage into the field combined with deep domain knowledge and expertise, you know, is certainly in my mind the winning formula. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. For a skydiver whose motto is just jump out and go, the journey from chasing down Sandinista kidnappers to driving Disney's strategy to genomics pioneer sounds sort of rational. Lisa Alderson is one of those special someone who thrives on adrenaline and channels it to great effect. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David. Yes, Lisa. We're about to talk to uh, another Lisa, fortunately. Okay. I like. I have a lot of Lisas in my life. It's good. I like it. And um, about her uh, you know, journey to the genomics world. And I'm wondering, have you had your genome sequenced? Uh, you know, I haven't, and um, but this is you know it, it comes up. It certainly came up a lot in uh, my last role. Uh, yeah, people would people would ask. Um, but a lot of us haven't actually. I haven't. Um, uh, but like, but why not? Why, why not? Well, you? I'm going to get to that because uh, so folks I haven't include me. Folks like Zach Kohaney, people like Eric Lander. Um, at least you know according to yeah. last summer, I think it was at some fancy Aspen thing you were doing. <laughs> um, um, and I I think a lot of it is how you balance the benefit and and the risk. I think for any of us, if God forbid, there was a real indi- it was specific indication. Um, that's what Eric Landers said last summer, that, you know, God forbid if he had cancer or something like that, he'd get it sequenced in a second. But otherwise, a lot of it, and we talked about this actually mm-hmm. with you and Ashley, sort of how you deal with anxiety and all the unknown significance and the variables. And basically, if you'd become more anxious about it and worried versus it would be more helpful. So for, for you and he got his whole family sequenced and he sort of was able, felt like he was able to handle it and it was just informative. Whereas I think um, maybe if one has another phenotype, uh, you know, you, you tend to ha- uh, respond with more sort of uh, anxiety and angst. Yeah, well, I, I guess there's going to be a lot of people out there trying to find out if they're from Norway. But uh, anyways, <laughs> um, <clears throat> Lisa went pretty... I'm sure that will age well. <laughs> yeah, really. Lisa Alderson went pretty far down the journalism path. She founded Campus TV while at Colorado State University, and it's still a going concern. She worked as a foreign correspondent for CNN, CBS, and others, and even interned with Dan Rather. But in the end, she was more drawn to entrepreneurship than ratings and went down the startup road, entering at the tech bubble and eventually landing in the evolving world of genomics. Lisa, welcome to Tectonics. Uh, How are you doing? Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here, and thank you, David. I'm uh, honored to be a part of the program. Um, You and I have this in common. We both love journalism, and you said you loved it because of the human side of stories. Is there a difference in that storyline because between journalism and healthcare, or is the human part of it the same attraction? You know, the human part of that is a common theme. When I started my career in journalism, um, you know, it really was about telling people's stories. And I think I have found my path and my journey over to life sciences because I want to not only tell those stories, but actually impact and hopefully change those stories in a really positive way. And the field of Genomics is just advancing so rapidly. There's uh, such a strong opportunity to impact uh, patient care and actually improve patient care, improve patient outcomes, uh, that I found my way to this field around 2000 when it was really just very nascent and have really made it my home more recently uh, in order to feel like I'm giving back in ways that are very 
profound and, and as I said, even life-changing uh, ways. So that's so funny. I went and saw the movie The Post on Friday night. Have yes. you seen that? No, but I've heard about it. It sounds uh, fantastic. Have you seen it, Lisa? I have not, but uh, actually it's possibly on the docket for even later today. So. <laughs> yeah, it was. I sat there in the movie theater. It's about the Wa- the Washington Post and the Pulitzer and the... Um, Watergate yeah. investigation, right? No, the Pentagon Papers Pentagon Papers, right. Pentagon Paper investigations that really put it on the map. And um, all I could think was, damn, I really still want to be a journalist. It was kind of funny. <laughs> but um, your first entrepreneurial endeavor was in college, founding Campus TV uh, at Colorado State. What was it about that experience that resonated so much for you? You know, it was really my first sense of building something truly from nothing. Um, this was a... Uh, journalism program that uh, has, you know, built up to become, frankly, one of the top journalism programs in the country. And for whatever reason, I was motivated from a very early age, actually around 16, I started volunteering at the local cable station. And, you know, this was in the uh, 90s. And so it was a much more prominent uh, field and uh, whatnot. And uh, I kind of found this passion about raising, you know, capital and getting people involved and building up the program. And by the time I graduated, I had about 200 student volunteers, and uh, we'd won some amazing industry awards. And uh, it just became this phenomenal program. And you know, to see that now, frankly, more than 20 years later still touching students and really, you know, shaping and forming their early careers uh, has just been so rewarding for me that I think it it was part of my realization that I very much enjoy just that passion of building businesses. And in that case, a television station. (laughs) So. So, so focusing on TV and broadcasting for a minute, it sounds like the experience in college really catapulted you into a media career. What was the most exciting story that you covered? You know, I was a I was a foreign correspondent, uh, kind of a freelance foreign correspondent in Central America, and um, th- there were a couple of stories there that were really quite intriguing. One that was actually shadowing uh, kind of the Mosquito Indian tribe, um, and then the second was was sort of a high adrenaline event where uh, um, uh, sort of a senior foreign leader uh, from uh, Nicaragua had been. Uh, captured and the, the the plane was touching down briefly in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and uh, we ended up uh, sort of running through the city trying to get footage and satellite feeds back to the United States to cover the event. And so, you know, it's just one of those that's a very deadline-driven uh, industry, but also you never know what the day is going to hold for you. And so uh, it really becomes kind of an, an adventure every every given day. It sounds so cool. Does Lisa, Lisa and I are both like, okay, like, so why the hell did you leave that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it was a recognition. One, I'm a, I'm a really, like, I am an optimist, as diehard as they come. And, you know, there's a lot about news that is not that optimistic. And so I think it, part of my gravitational pull was, <laughs> that I, you know, I I just didn't want to be kind of a jaded career journalist that spent decades sort of covering, in some cases, you know, 
not the upbeat side of it. And so I think that's also why I really gravitated towards more of the documentaries and the human interest stories. That's so interesting. Exactly the same reason that I didn't go down that path in the end. Because it's sort of beca- the folks become, it's sort of too right. more pessimistic. The better the story. Right. And, and, the folks, <laughs> and the folks get too embittered. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. So in the end, though, really, what all your experiences taught you was that you're much more interested in startups than television. So how, what was it? What, what was the, the thing about the sort of starting up phase of things that excited you and uh, gave you that adrenaline shot that, you know, following the Sandinistas could give you? And how did you transition to the next phase? Well, so having started first the, the television station, then I actually started a small uh, production company. You know, and, and both of those had been positive experiences and, you know, frankly, uh, kind of continued to prosper. And so it really just occurred to me that, gosh, I've been kind of building these companies largely on gut instinct. I had a you know liberal arts undergraduate degree, and so I, I felt like I needed to get some real training as uh, kind of a general manager. And so I attended Harvard Business School and looked at that as an opportunity to study both entrepreneurialism, but also really just sound finance, economics, marketing, et cetera. And so I so enjoyed my experience there that that really put me on the path and to, uh, you know, continue in first kind of strategy side of, of business, but ultimately being an entrepreneur and, and building companies, which is really where my true passion lies. So you're a strategy uh, person at Disney and ESPN. That sounds fun. I mean, the perks there, you get to go to cool events and see sporting events and, you know, meet Mickey Mouse as opposed to like in the genomics <laughs> world where you can like get a free genome sequence or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I um, so I worked in a, a group called Strategic Planning at the Walt Disney Company, and I worked in a building that's called the Team Disney Building. It has the seven dwarfs on the front of the building. I've been there. And actually. so, you know, every day arriving, you know, it was just kind of this jolly, jolly good place, and you know, just a um, an incredible team. I mean, truly, I uh, I joined Disney right out of business school, and just the caliber of individuals, their strategic capabilities was just an unbelievable environment. And I was still at a pretty young age and given uh, just a lot of opportunity to help uh, shape and drive long-term strategy for both ABC and ESPN. Um, And so that was a wonderful bridge for me from my early days in media to now more as a strategist and uh, kind of business builder uh, within a large Fortune 500 company. And, you know, I learned so much at Disney. I mean, truly, if you think about brands that have, you know, conjure up images of, uh, you know, kind of strong brand loyalty across multiple generations. I mean, Disney is really, you know, kind of close to the top of that list. And so absolutely learning a lot about what does it take to create kind of customer value and just the sort of the, the essence of a brand and, you know, the positivity of a brand. And frankly, that's one of the really hard things when you're starting a new company because a brand means nothing to anybody <laughs> at that point. And how do, you, how do you build it in the ways that uh, are longstanding but also, you know, conjure up the essence of what you're looking for in the company that you're creating. That must have been an incredibly valuable skill set as you then left there to go off to Idea Lab, which was one of the early, early tech accelerator incubator type of entities. Um, that must and right in the in the go go days of the internet boom. What what the hell? How did you make that leap? You know, and what did, what was that like? 
<laughs> you know, Idea Lab, which is led by Bill Gross, is just such an innovative uh, environment. And particularly, this was in 1999, which is in the heyday of the dot-com era. And we were in that, you know, zone of, you know, let's sell, name your product yep. online, right? Let's sell dog food online. Let's sell sofas online. Let's sell cars online. Right. And so it, it was kind of this really um, – you know, mass innovation and rapid change. And there I, I, again, learned just tremendous skills. But the one that probably stands out for me that, you know, which just really kind of came from Bill Gross himself was really this essence of when you're building a new business, the number one risk is really your product market fit. And how do you very quickly try to determine if you have a product, and in that case, that people would buy over the internet? And, you know, how do you sort of create the scrappy, fast website that's going to validate general market interest and how do you do that in honestly like 48 hours right and how do you drive traffic there and get sort of a litmus test and then and then maybe reconstitute it and build it you know for longevity kind of the second time around if you will but this idea that the world is kind of a test market and how do you try to validate and you know calibrate on on the market need and are you able to address that need uh, with very limited capital and very limited resources, I think still serves well in today's world. So you have all this energy and excitement and optimism, and you go into your first tech startup. And in my understanding is that it it didn't become the next Facebook, um, or maybe the first Facebook. <laughs> what happened, and what did you learn from it? Definitely. So, you know, in 1999, it was the dot-com heyday, and in 2000, it was the dot-com bust. And so uh, we had raised a fair amount of capital. This is for a company uh, called iExchange that later went on to become Placemark Investments. But uh, suffice it to say, when the market fell out, our board uh, kind of had the wherewithal to realize that we needed to do a very massive course correction and quickly. And so myself and a couple of the other senior execs were brought together and, you know, basically informed that we needed to figure out which roughly 60% of the company was going to be let go, you know, in the next 24 to 48 hours. And that was a very hard uh, just life lesson, if you will. It was hard because, oh my gosh, that sounds brutal. you know, I found, you know, particularly as an early leader, but even today, like I really am very committed to my team. I go through painstaking effort to select just the highest caliber team. And that was the case here at, at iExchange. And so feeling like, uh, you know, this was of no fault of the individual, it just made it all that much more uh, challenging for me uh, to have to take such a dramatic course correction. And so, of course, you know, we, we, uh, we got together and, and figured out how to best navigate and kind of pivot the company and redirect and strategize on next steps and to do that with a much leaner team and uh, hopefully uh, provide some degree of transition for folks that needed to transition out. But it really was, um, frankly, it just really took a toll on me. It was a very hard phase and hard period, uh, you know, as a leader. And I think it ultimately, um, you know, probably matured me in ways that only an event like that can do. It's interesting to think about, you know, kind of your first tech, you know, foray didn't go so well. And, you know, then you went right back out and did another one. You know, how did you keep that first run from from dampening your spirit? How did you decide that the next move you'd make would be 
you know, to go right back at it. Well, so I did take a few months off and I traveled the world. So there's that. <laughs> it's always a nice just kind of pause and reset and recalibrate and, you know, kind of frankly, like recharge the batteries and think about life's journey and where you want to take that. Um, but ultimately, like I really have a strong North Star that um, I just have such tremendous energy and I have always felt almost kind of a call that for some of the challenges, like the big challenges in this world, I almost feel like I need to be one of those individuals that will step up to try to solve them. Because to some extent, I look around and I feel like, you know what, I've, I've been given a number of advantages. I, I've attended great schools. I, you know, have strong intellect. And like, I, I need to be able to do this in order to feel good and, and um, frankly feel like I'm, I'm using my time wisely. And so, uh, so I think there was just kind of a recharge the batteries and then I very quickly, uh, you know, kind of jumped back in, but in a different, in a different field. And uh, that was my first foray actually into genetics and genomics. And this was in 2000. And uh, through my uh, one of the folks that had invested in this last company, um, Kleiner Perkins, I was introduced to Randy Scott, who at the time was starting a company called Genomic Health as the founder and CEO. And so that really uh, was also exciting to me because it was technology enabled, but a new field and it felt fresh and a new learning experience. But that, I mean, that's a big pivot. It- I mean, it seems like it's, I don't know whether pivot or journey, however you want to describe it. I mean, from sort of media to media strategy to technology to now health. I mean, that's, you know, particularly many many in health, you know, sort of believe it's, you know, there's a whole exceptionalism about the business and it, there's a lot of domain knowledge and a lot of, you know, sort of complexity, you know, and people and many people coming from the outside seem to really struggle with it. Well, how did you sort of come to, I guess, what were your views about embracing health uh, and a sort of a healthcare-focused company, and how did you approach that challenge? So, you know, it was, it was a great partnership from the beginning in that I came in clearly with no domain expertise. And, in fact, my initial reaction was like, wow, genomics, this is not a field I know well at all or at all, really. And, uh, you know, at that time, particularly from the business side, there, it, I mean, it was we were sequencing the human genome for the first time, so there really weren't a whole cadre of, of, of experts other than obviously from the, the, sci- the science side. Um, and so it, it, it allowed me to bring kind of the business acumen side and thinking about, you know, what's uh, sort of supporting the team and what's the first product we're bringing to market, how are we thinking about our operating plan and the major milestones we want to accomplish. And um, I brokered into the early business development deals. And so it, it just really allowed me to take a very business-centric focused approach, which frankly, there's a lot of kind of patterns in business that one recognizes, particularly from a strategy side um, of business. And so uh, I just partnered with the founding team to, to uh, really feel like I, you know, I, was, I was contributing in the ways that were meaningful. Um, and it was a huge education for me. That's so interesting. What was the hardest thing for you to learn? Uh, well, you know, I mean, truly the science of it is just uh, amazing and remarkable. And I would not at all consider myself an expert in human biology. And so, you know, I think there's, um, there's just a constant opportunity for advanced learning in the field and frankly, our knowledge of 
what is causative of disease is changing rapidly as well. And so uh, even the experts in the field <laughs> have a challenge keeping abreast of it. So it's, it's a constant source of new learning for me. Wow. And I think it, was there any, I'm kind of curious about the, uh, you know, we, we, Lisa and I talk about this sometimes about whether the limiting factor and for some of these, you know, genetics or sort of health technology companies is sort of the science and technology aspect or what you're saying is people who actually have the business and even to some degree sales and marketing experience and strategy and know how to, okay, you know, someone has to actually come to here who knows how to sell something or someone has to know how to bring something to actual consumers and get paid for it. You know, there seems to be, you know, a, um, an ongoing tension between in some companies between those different roles. Well, did you see that at all? Uh, you know, it definitely takes um, the kind of the happy marriage of the combination of those fields. And that is a challenge. Um, but I think, you know, particularly with the growth in genomics recently, we're seeing you know, tech-centric companies entering more and more in the field. And I think a tech-only background can actually be quite challenging and potentially even problematic because it is such a highly regulated field that you really need domain expertise with deep knowledge in the field. But I think only that domain knowledge can also be a challenge because it very quickly conditions traditional ways of thinking and the way we've historically done healthcare is by no means the gold standard of what we should be doing on a go forward basis. And so really the combination of tech expertise and innovation to think about how do you bring scalability and leverage into the field combined with deep domain knowledge and expertise, you know, is certainly in my mind the winning formula. And to do that with the combination of you know, both scientists and bioinformaticians and medical practitioners and, you know, uh, sales and marketing, like that whole combination of skills is required uh, to, to, to succeed. So, so, what, so tell us, make, we want to make sure we have a chance to sort of get, get to it more fully. How did all of this journey lead you to starting the company that you're, that you're at now? Because there's been so much excitement about genomics, but you know, sort of more excitement than exits, I guess you could say, or, 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 or uh, you know, it, it's, there's, there seems like there should be so much promise, but in terms of, um, you know, I think it's been a mixed experience for investors. Well, what if, um, tell us about how you wound up starting the company that you're at now and where you see the niche for it. Certainly. So Genome Medical is actually the third company in the field of genetics and genomics that I've had the fortune of being involved with at an early stage. And just prior to this, I was uh, the chief commercial officer and then the chief strategy officer at Invitae. Invitae is quickly sure. becoming one of the fastest growing genetic testing companies and genetic information companies. Yeah, the CMO is a great guy. He's the uh, used to be at UCSF, really knows his That's stuff. That's correct. And so with, um, with my focus on Invitae, it became clear to me that actually the greatest barrier in shepherding in this new era of precision medicine, of which genetics and genomics is a really critical building block to the future promise of precision medicine. The biggest barrier really is that we have too few clinicians who are knowledgeable and trained in the field to know first which patients might benefit from genetic testing, second, you know, which tests to order because there are many different labs and many different tests, 
And then third, how to actually interpret the information that results and how to use that to guide ongoing clinical care for patients. And so I really became empowered by the idea of, you know, precision medicine and maybe even more specifically, uh, you know, genomics has the promise to both reduce the cost of healthcare delivery and improve patient outcomes. And yet, typically, it's about a 17-year journey between the point when you establish clinical utility for testing to when you then have medical management guidelines and reimbursement coverage in place and ultimately physician adoption. And I have too many personal stories, friends, family members who've been touched and impacted by cancer at an early age or cardiovascular disease or other inheritable conditions that I simply felt as though, you know, I couldn't stand back and wait and watch for this new era of genomic medicine to come into the practice of everyday healthcare to impact lives. And, you know, a whole generation of waiting just was going to be insufficient in my mind. We really need to fast forward and bring the standard of genetics now into practice today uh, as, as readily as one can. So, Lisa, you started a genomedical uh, which is really a services company. I realize there's tech and it's tech-enabled you know, services company, but it's a services company fundamentally doing telemedicine for genetic counseling. Is there genetic counseling as a service kind of thing? Yeah. All the least could probably answer that question even better than I. And um, that, you know, in some ways to, to start a services company, tech-enabled tech as it may be, flies in the face of what many in Silicon Valley think is a good idea. It doesn't happen to fly in the face of what I think is a good idea, but... but um, you know, well, you invested in it. Pretty bold, <laughs> yeah. And, and yes, in full disclosure, GE Ventures did invest in genome. No, I'm just saying, like you're putting your money so. where your mouth is. Yeah. So. Um, what it, did you view that as a gutsy move? Did people counsel you against it? Did you get a lot of support for it? What were people responding to you when you were thinking about starting a services company? Well, I think there's such recognition. So here's how I would think about it. You know, eventually every primary care doctor, every internist, every pediatrician, every OB-GYN, every cardiologist, every neurologist, every oncologist, et cetera, is going to need to get more knowledgeable about the field. Genetics and genomics touches all areas of medicines. Basically, we, ha we all have a genome. It's one of the number one factors that affects our health, and yet we've only recently had the medicine, the science, and the technology to be able to analyze that genome at an affordable price point and interpret the you know, aspects of our genome to better understand first what our risks are for certain disease, as well as uh, this information can be really useful to try to get to an accurate diagnosis. Um, and ultimately, it can even help us select the right therapeutic option and understand drug dosing. And so I really, I fundamentally believe, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on today and say, how did we ever diagnose patients? How did we ever prescribe drugs? And we never looked at their molecular makeup. It's almost like there was a day in medicine where we didn't know how to do a blood draw. You know, we didn't have a microscope. We couldn't analyze that and use that to help guide ongoing patient care. And that seems pretty arcane. And I, I, I believe with my whole heart that there will be a day we'll look back and say, 
similarly, it was pretty arcane to not actually look at the molecular makeup of the individual. How do you start a, vi a virtuous cycle? Because right now, most doctors don't, uh, you know, uh, ask about this. Um, but it's also not clear how determinative most of the inf information is. And if you had the information, what one would necessarily do with it. And I imagine that your service becomes more useful as more people have more questions. Um, so how do, what, what is the business model? How do you sort of, who do you mostly serve and how do you plan to serve more people? Certainly. So we serve both patients directly so we can create easy access to genetic experts. And our team, just for clarity, Genome Medical is a nationwide medical practice focused on genomics. So we have a coordinated care delivery model that includes medical geneticists with expertise in many different domains, many different areas of genetics. And there are actually 7,000 Mendelian inherited disorders. And so uh, there's a lot of subspecialties. And then we also have genetic counselors who provide counseling for the patient. And David, when you started the, the program, Lisa asked you if you'd been sequenced. And you're right in that there is sort of this, how do you deliver um, a better sense of whether or not testing would even be beneficial for you and what are the risks and benefits of testing. And so uh, I'm not here to advocate uh, for testing for every individual. What I am here to advocate for is, you know, how do we help bring the standard of care in genetics forward? And so by illustration, uh, there was a, a recent research in the um, Journal of Clinical Oncology that de demonstrated that there are about 3.8 million women in the United States alone that have a history of breast and ovarian cancer. And according to NCCN guidelines, uh, there are many of those who would meet criteria for genetic counseling services and, you know, genetic testing. And that would really be covered by insurance if they were diagnosed at an early age. Uh, typically under the age of 50, or if they had two first-degree family members who had cancer, one of which was diagnosed at an early age. And yet the vast majority of those, those individuals, in this case women, were never even counseled about the opportunity for genetic testing. And that becomes an important consideration, um, even more so before you're diagnosed with cancer, uh, but even at the point of diagnosis, because it can help inform how you, know, you choose to be treated and potentially uh, inform a more aggressive regimen, because uh, if you're a carrier of a certain, certain set of mutations, uh, that can put you at elevated risk. Uh, for for other forms of cancer as well. But you're primarily selling through other businesses, though, not direct to consumer. That is correct. No, that is correct. But but my point there to illustrate was just that you know there there are, there are many individuals who would benefit that are not getting access through the traditional healthcare system today. So the way in which we bridge that, you know, one, yes, we can uh, individuals can self-refer to Genome Medical, and and we will um, provide care directly. But mostly it's through physicians. And what is increasingly occurring is that, uh, you know, knowledge of the standard of care in genetics is spreading. And yet most primary care doctors, internists, and colleges, you know, still feel as though they aren't uh, comfortable yet in the field of genetics and genomics. And so we offer an easy way for those individuals, those physicians, to refer the patient to Genome Medical. Genome Medical will provide upfront counseling for the individual to determine whether or not 
one, they're eligible under insurance, but also whether they'd like to pursue testing. And then we can order that test, we can get the results back, we can interpret it in the context of the individual's personal and family health history. And then frankly, we partner with the referring physician to help them understand what it means for ongoing treatment for their patient. And so with those patient cases, those other physicians are also increasing their comfort and familiarity in the field. And so we see this as sort of an extension to help empower other physicians uh, over time. You must really be looking for ways to also be more involved, you know, as effortlessly, as, as friction-free as possible in the workflow, because I can imagine, you know, there are some things, oh, someone has, an, you know, there's a clear history, there's a clear issue, okay, you refer to a uh, medical geneticist, but then there are more subtle issues where, okay, what, you know, what drug do you recommend for some particular condition that could have a genetic impact, but are you going to all of a sudden go through the whole rigmarole of a, med- of a genetics referral for that, you know, so I, I can imagine and you must have to do a lot, be pretty selective but, you know, in, in what you look at and work increasingly hard to become more integrated into workflow. We, we are working to become integrated in workflows. We're also, though, using tools and technology to address all three of the primary barriers that I highlighted. First, which patients should even benefit and be referred. So we actually have a really simple patient questionnaire that individuals can complete. It highlights whether or not they um, are apt to meet criteria under insurance for coverage. And so we're, again, working to find the individuals who uh, should be gaining access. And then if they don't meet the criteria, there's an opportunity for them to consider, you know, uh, kind of more of a proactive health uh, program, uh, but that would be paid for out of pocket. So more of a patient pay approach. And so that allows, the, let's say, a primary care physician to be able to uh, make that simple survey available to any of their patients well, at the time of an annual checkup or at you know, any point. And then that allows us to better catch the individuals that would most benefit. And then we make it a real turnkey process for, um, you know, for the physician and, frankly, for the patient. And part of it, because everything we do is via digital health, we have a telehealth platform. You can go to genomedical.com and schedule an appointment uh, next day. We have evening hours. We have weekend hours. So it really removes a lot of the historical logistic hassles. Um, And in fact, in the United States, there are only about 2,000 medical geneticists, and there are only about 4,000 genetic counselors. And so collectively, we have 6,000 experts for a population of 330 million. And so historically, getting to that expertise was actually quite challenging. Um, one, it's very consolidated at leading academic centers, but, but, but two, wait times can be quite long. And so breaking down the barriers is a big part of what we're focused on. Well, you've said to me that you're an adrenaline junkie. You love skydiving and anything else that pushes you in the outdoors, that your motto is just jump out and go. <laughs> is that the quality you need to be a great entrepreneur? Is that, is that what, what guides you? No, well, you know, I think there's a lot more than that. I think the jump out and go needs to be informed by uh, <laughs> knowledge of, of the market and uh, some, you know, domain specialization and expertise. But certainly I do think there is an aspect of just recognizing you're never going to have all of the answers. Um, and particularly if you're trying to push into a field where there are very real barriers and big barriers. Um, you know, I think it can be somewhat intimidating. And so there is an aspect, I think, that makes an entrepreneur uh, a strong entrepreneur, which is a little bit of a sense of uh, a little sense of an adventure, but also a, kind of a willingness to say, 
you know what, I'm going to figure it out as I go, and we're going to tackle those uh, challenges head on, and there will be challenges. I mean, any business, uh, that is just a, a given. And so I think uh, from a personality perspective, what I've coached, um, you know, particularly students in, in college as they're thinking about entrepreneur as a career, you know, one, you almost need to look at yourself and say, how do you do with change? Because the vast majority of the population really does not like change fundamentally. And so being able to be adaptable and ultimately really a change agent, not only just comfortable with change, but frankly, embracing change and making it happen, uh, you know, is, is a critical uh, component to, I think, a successful entrepreneur. Well, Felisa, thank you so much. That was a great way to end the conversation for today. We so appreciate your time coming on the show. Thank you both so much, Lisa and David. Really appreciate it. And uh, uh, I may go see the post this afternoon. So thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> I think you should. I think you'll like it. Take care. Bye. Today's guest, Lisa Alderson, was speaking to us today from Monterey while we sit ensconced in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. David, as someone who's spent a lot of time in the genomics field, what's your take on the services play here? I th- well, I think that there's an unquestionably there's a need for... Um, genomic counseling. It's really the limiting factor for so many of the efforts. Um, I, you know, it's interesting to wonder how the company is going to evolve because the needs for genomics and how uh, counseling, you know, everyone kept thinking, oh, it's going to be here now. It's going to be here now. It's going to be here now. And, you know, it, and yet we're still more or less, you know, mostly not here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet and, and, and there's how, like a new genetic test that's approved every damn day or comes out every day. You know, and a lot of the places there are, you know, like are places that are doing a lot of this going to use someone like this? I don't know. You know, where's my guess is that they will they will hopefully discover some sort of niche within all the I mean, it's it's very um, un, there's a broad range of people they're trying to serve in different conditions There's unbelievable heterogeneity. And it will be interesting if within that they're able to find some particular I imagine what's going to happen is there'll be some maybe even unexpected areas of intense traction. And that may be what they wind up building the business around. Yeah, well, I hope so. Uh, very excited to, to watch it all unfold, as you can imagine. Yeah. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And Lisa at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful, very grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Have a great day. Take care. <laughs>